It's great to be together on this Sunday morning, and we're going to be continuing from our series from the book of Joshua. We'll be looking at chapter 5 in particular. So as you're turning there to your Bibles, I'm going to restart reading uh, the first nine verses for us. Okay, so here's what the scripture says. It came about when all the kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites, who were by the sea, so of these two tribes occupying different parts of the promised land, heard how the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan before the sons of Israel until they had crossed, that their hearts melted, and there was no spirit in them any longer because the sons of Israel. So the context is that the nation of Israel has now crossed the Jordan. In the same way that Moses led them across the Red Sea, now Joshua has led them across the Jordan, parted the Jordan, and two million people walked across on dry land in 24 hours. This was an amazing feat. It was miraculous. God had promised for hundreds of years that the people of Israel returned to the land flowing with milk and honey, and now that day had come. Now those who were inhabitants of the land, the Amorites and the Canaanites, they had heard that the mighty Jordan River had been dried up like a heap, it says in the scriptures. And all these people came across and their hearts were melted. And if I were in the land, I would also have this great fear. There's this God that's coming across the Jordan and bringing all these people. What does it mean for us? So that's the background that's going on here. And then we read on. After all these people get across, they're now planted in the promised land for the very first time. Verse 2, at that time the Lord said to Joshua, make for yourselves flint knives and circumcise again the sons of Israel the second time. So Joshua made himself flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Haraloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who had come out of Egypt who were males, all the men of war, died in the wilderness along the way after they came out of Egypt. So when Moses delivered them, all the males came out. They were men of war, 20 years and over. But because of their unbelief, God said, you're going to circle in the desert. And all those that were caught in the sin of unbelief, they're going to die in the desert. I'm going to raise up a new generation. That new generation that was going to come into the promised land had not been circumcised. So we read on here in verse 5, for all the people who came out were circumcised. But all the people who were born in the wilderness along the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the sons of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, that is the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not listen to the voice of the Lord to whom the Lord had sworn that he would not let them see the land which the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. And their children whom he raised up in their place, Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised, because they had, not been circus they had not circumcised them along the way. Now it came about when they had finished circumcising all the nation, that they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you, so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. So Father, we just look to you right now. We thank you for the power of your word. We thank you, Lord, for what you did in the desert plains of Jericho and the desert plains of the Jordan. Lord, and how these truths have been captured for us. And we want to understand, Father God, the meaning. And we want to grow, God, from these lessons. So Holy Spirit, stand in our midst and be our teacher. Touch our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. 
The title of my message this morning is Gilgal and being separated unto God. And we're going to look at the significance of circumcision. As we just read, this was the, the feature event of what happened when all the Israelites crossed over. And why is it so important? And what is this circumcision? What are the lessons that God wants us to take away from it? If you backtrack in the Bible, circumcision is something that goes back to the founding of the nation of Israel. It originated with Abraham when God called him to be the father of the Jews. Abraham was like the George Washington of Israel. And so several hundred years, several hundred years prior, when God called Abraham to be the father of this nation, in Genesis 17, it talks about this pivotal moment where God gives this promise to Abraham. And he is 99 years old. And I'm reading from Genesis 17. If you're taking notes, you can write that down. But I'm just going to read from you. God says to Abraham, I'm God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you. I'm going to multiply you exceedingly. You're going to be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but you shall be called Abraham. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come forth from you. That's quite a promise. Prime ministers and presidents and kings will be part of your lineage. I will give to you and your descendants the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Today, even when we see in the Middle East all the conflict that's going on between the Arabs and the Jews and all the surrounding nations, it goes all the way back to these Bible verses. We're actually living out the tension of these verses right here and right now. God went on to further say, I'm going to bring these verses up for you. Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants, after you throughout the generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin. It shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. So circumcision, which is the physical removal of foreskin from the male part, was a sign of God's covenant with the Jews. Of all the nations in the earth, the Jews would have a special chosen relationship with God. And circumcision would be the sign that the Jews were God's. He laid special claim to them. They were separated unto him. The fact that God put the covenantal sign in the most private part of a man is actually extremely important. Number one, it tells you how we are to regard our relationship with God. It's not trivial. It's not half serious. It's not lighthearted. Our relationship to God is to be the closest, most intimate thing that we possess. We literally carry the sign of our walk with God in our flesh. Second thing that we note is that circumcision is done on the most hidden and private parts which means that people can't see it. Only God can. And that's on purpose. We may be able to fake our relationship with God to men, but we can't fake it with God. He sees past the outward to what's really on the inside. We don't want consumer Christians. We don't want those who just pretend like they're doing the Christian thing. That's of no value. The reason why Jesus came after the Pharisees and Sadducees, being the teachers, the supposed models of faith in Israel, is that they were only worshiping God in outward form. Their heart was far away 
from God. Jesus quoted the prophet Isaiah, said, your heart is far away from me. There was no real circumcision. So we can't fake our walk with God. Circumcision is that thing which is part of the workings of the inner heart. A third thing that we note about circumcision is the act of being circumcised is painful. Flint knives were used. And back then there was no anesthetic. When circumcision was enacted with Abraham, God said every male was to be circumcised when they were eight years old. So actually this is a practice now that's come down to our medical community. We circumcise our sons when they're two or three days old. That practice is traced back to what God gave to Abraham. These days we do it for medical reasons. Back then it was a religious covenantal ceremony. Now as an eight-year-old, eight-day-year-old baby, you have pain, but you forget it. You cry, and then it's gone. But now we're talking about the men of war. They're in their 20s, and they're getting circumcised, and it's painful. I had a friend that was circumcised when he was in his 20s. And just like the, the men of Israel that we read about, it took several days for him to heal. I remember coming into this room and say, hey, let's go out and, and do some things. And he was walking like an old man. I go, what's up with you? And courageously said, well, I got circumcised. So everything was super sensitive. Now, I say this not to give TMI, but to illustrate that the physical act of circumcision illustrates a spiritual principle. For us to make spiritual progress, it's not all fun and games. Somehow we think that Christianity is just a walk in a park, but in fact, it requires some pain. No pain, no gain. We know this to be true of anyone that wants to be successful in the natural. If you want to be good at your job, be a pro athlete, a great musician, a great writer, you have to commit to your craft. You have to work hard at honing your skills. You have to pay a price. It's not easy. Growing spiritually takes discipline and effort and intentionality. Why would we think otherwise when it comes to our spiritual walk? Why do we get lazy all of a sudden? We don't just randomly mature as Christians. We have to be focused. Now to say this is not to say that we improve by our own works, our own strength. The grace of God always empowers us and undergirds our development. But we have to cooperate with the grace of God. The Lord rings up our phone. He knocks on the door. But we have to open the door. We have to answer the phone. He won't just bust down the door. He won't cram the phone down your throat. You have to respond with him. And it's in that cooperation that we labor and we partner with God. And in the midst of that, there is growing pains. Pains. It's a real thing. So the sign of circumcision was a sign of the Jews' covenantal relationship with God. No one else carried the sign. That's why when David went up against Goliath, he just berated him and said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? Who is this, in other words, pagan, uncivilized, uncouth man? It was a way of putting down the enemy because they didn't have that special relationship with the Lord. To be circumcised was to have the mark of their particular status. That they were set aside wholly to be God's people for God's purposes. Now the Bible tells us very clearly that this was not just sort of a nice ceremonial thing. That God meant business when he instituted circumcision. And it's underscored by this amazing story where God went to kill Moses. Did you know that God wanted to kill Moses? 
In Exodus chapter 4, I've been reading along in our literacy program. After God called Moses to deliver Israel from Egypt, the Bible says, quote, It came about at the lodging place on the way that the Lord met Moses and sought to put him to death. This, this is crazy. Moses was going to be God's man of the hour. God had already charged him to go to Egypt and to emancipate the Jews. He had already received his marching orders. And then all of a sudden the Bible says, God's going to kill him? I just love the Bible. There's nothing like a Bible story. There's more drama in the Bible than 10 Hollywood films put together. Why would God want to kill Moses? Well, the answer is given right there in verse 25 and 26. Moses had not circumcised his son. After being in the desert for 40 years, Moses had forgotten the covenantal sign. As an infant of eight days old, his mom had him circumcised, but then he was whisked off to the Egyptian palace, grew up under Pharaoh's training, and so he grew up among the Egyptians, and then he became a nomad in the desert for another 40 years. He forgot the essential sign of his birth culture after being isolated from it for 80 years. And so how could Moses lead the Jews if his own son did not bear the marks of their Jewishness? But thank God for Zipporah. Who is Zipporah? Zipporah was Moses' wife who bailed him out. She knew God had put a bounty on her husband's head because he had not circumcised their son. So she did it for Moses right there in the hotel room. And the Bible says she threw the foreskin of their son at Moses' feet. This was reality TV at its best. <laughs> I'm not making this up. It's right there in the Bible. I just love the Bible. It's so gritty. It's so raw. It's so real. If people think that the Bible is boring or somehow religious and it's airy-fairy, have them read it. It's all there. And where would Israel be had it not been for Moses' wife? God would have killed Moses. Thank God for our wives who bail us out as husbands. Can I hear an amen from the sisters? <laughs> Moses was on a mission, big picture, and he forgot this one little important detail. Well, that little important detail could have got him killed, but it was his wife that remembered. The point here is that circumcision is not an optional thing. It was an issue of life and death. That's how God related to it in Moses' life. And so it is for us as Christians today. This is not optional. We must be separated from the world and separated unto God if we want to get into our promised land. As we read in chapter 5, verse 9, the word Gilgal means to roll away the reproach of Egypt. The humiliation, the shame, the idea that we have become slaves. That was our status. We're supposed to be sons of God and all of a sudden now we're slaves. Circumcision is that picture. I've rolled away the reproach of Egypt. In other words, I have taken you out of Egypt, but I also need to take Egypt out of you. That's actually the bigger assignment. Physically removing you from Egypt was one thing, but taking Egypt out of your heart, that's another. And Egypt is a picture of worldliness. The Israelites were about to go into the promised land filled with Canaanites and their pagan ways. If the Israelites did not consecrate themselves unto God, they would be susceptible and tempted to be like the Canaanites. This is happening all around us. 
Christians are going into the place and they're just like, yeah, I want to be like the Canaanite. I'm not going to let go of my Egyptian ways. I'm going to assimilate. I'm not going to be distinctive. The Egyptian appetites inside of us will cause us to be gravitated to the Canaanites. And if the Israelites had done that, they would have broken covenant with God. They would have lost their mission. They would have lost their purpose. But as God's people, we march to a different drumbeat. I hope you're hearing a different drumbeat. There's a lot of noise out there. And our ears are attracted to that noise. And our ears are attracted to that drumbeat. But I hope you hear the drumbeat of something else. And that's God. We cannot become like the Canaanites or retain our Egyptian ways. We are God's people and no one else's. We are not of this world, or as Jesus said, we are to be in the world, but not of it. Coming into our promised land is serious business. And circumcision says this, more important than where you go is who you are. Because who you are determines your destination. Destiny comes out of identity. If Israel's identity as God's covenant people was not established through circumcision, they would have gone into the land and become just like the Canaanites. They would have assimilated right in with the natives and lost their identity, and everything would have been lost. Identity is the key. It had to come first in order to survive the cultural onslaught and pollution that they would face and see and hear. That's why we encourage you to steep yourselves in the Word of God, to be renewed in the Word of God. That's why the Lord said to Joshua right there in chapter 1, the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate it on in day and night. Our minds need to be renewed. There is so much pollution that's coming into our thought life, and before we know it, we think that's normal, but it's not. We need to be able to stand up to the cultural onslaught, the way the world thinks, the way the world acts. But then circumcision gets very practical. And once again, I want to highlight the practical nature of the Bible. It's not just conceptual or theoretical. The power of the Bible is that it transforms our hearts and behavior in the here and now. It literally transforms us so that we act differently. That's why we pray for God's kingdom to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Heaven touching earth is about the practical power of God. In the end, the reason why we buy something, the reason why we recommend something to other people is because it works. Do you recommend something to your friends if it doesn't work? Do you say, go buy that car, try this phone, buy those shoes, try this dress? You don't say that to your friends. You only say things to your friends that work. Christianity has to work in the end or it is nothing. It has to actually give you peace. It actually has to give you happiness. It actually has to give you freedom. We actually can access power that will release us from our bondage, our addictions, our difficulties. Is it real or not? It is real. Consecration is heaven coming into our hearts so you look like heaven and not earth. Being separated unto God is the heart crying out, make me more like you, Jesus. Let me behave like you, act like you, feel like you, respond like you, think like you. I hope every one of you has prayed that prayer. That's an act of consecration. And you know what? When you pray that prayer, God will answer it every single time. He will make you more like him. It's not going to be easy. 
There'll be difficult times. Part of the reason why God allows trials to come into our lives is to burn out the dross in our soul, to burn out the dross in our character so that we become gold. We never really know what's inside of us until we're put under pressure. We think it's all good, but we need the pressure to find out what's really on the inside. When you pray to be separated unto God, <coughs> you're praying a dangerous prayer. You're praying a prayer that will lead to happiness and joy and peace and grit and strength and perseverance because that's where Jesus is and that's what he gives. He said, I came to give life and give life abundantly. Not just a little bit. He's not just meeting it out. You don't have to take it take a ticket and get in line and say, can you please give me some of this? No, he's got a storehouse of life and it's a limitless storehouse and he will give it abundantly without measure. Lord, separate me from this world, not physically, but separate me unto you in my identity so I reflect you and become your image bearer. We are called to be image bearers of Jesus. Do we look like Jesus or do we not? Do we look like everything around us? Do we look like the Canaanites? Do we look like the Egyptians? Do we smell like the Egyptians? Consecration has become a forgotten act in Christianity in our rush to be relevant. But our first responsibility is to be like Jesus before we spread the good news. Jesus taught us this in Matthew 20, 20, 22. Chapter 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. You have to love God first. And then comes the grace. Then comes the power. Then comes the ability to love your neighbor. If you try to love your neighbor without loving God and him pouring into you, you're going to fail. People will frustrate you. People will irritate you. As pastors, we get sheep bite. The sheep will bite us. It's not fun. Go, oh, you're such a cuddly little sheep. I want to come and hug you. And then, bang, they bite you. What's with that? You have to have the shepherd's heart to love the sheep, to chase after them. It's so inconvenient to chase after sheep. Where does the energy come from? It comes from God. It comes from love. We sang about sinking deep. Sinking deep into what? The ocean of God's love. We are stuck in our mess. We're stuck in all our difficulties. God wants to extract us from that depth and put us into his depth. We've got to love God first, and out of that comes the ability to love our neighbor. First is first, and second is second. Well, then in verses 10 through 15, we see how circumcision gets real. There's three things that I want to point out. First comes from verse 10. Verse 10 reads, On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while they camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. Wait a minute. For 40 years while we were in the desert, we never celebrated the Passover. Now we have to do this religious thing? You mean we have to change our routine? I have to change my habits? Absolutely. Promised land living is different than Egyptian living. The old is the old and the new is the new. We have new habits to live by, new spiritual disciplines to live by. Oh, you mean, Pastor Rich, I should pray? Absolutely, you should pray. 24-7, you should be talking to God. You should be asking for his wisdom. You should be asking for his empowerment. You should be asking for his Holy Spirit to be flowing through you. 
You should have an ongoing communion with God like Adam had with God before he fell. Prayer is part of your new operating system. God rips out the old. He doesn't just upgrade it. No, he rips it out and he drops in a brand new system. He's not just about improving you. He's about wrecking you so that he can drop in his operating system. You mean I have to go to church? That's the wrong question. Your question should be, when can I go to church? When is there a third service and a fourth service? How come we don't have Wednesday night service? How come we don't have Monday and Friday? That should be your question. We have an epidemic of church in attendance. Somehow the demographic people are saying, you know what? The normal Christian now goes to church twice a month. I rebuke that in Jesus' name. Tell me where it says in the Bible we go to church once a month or twice a month. And then we think we're a good Christian because we're really doing it for him. Going to church every single week is a basic spiritual discipline. It's a new habit. Consecration is not just about individual change. It's a communal change. And one of the things that we see in Joshua is that it's a community that's doing it, not just one person. That's why we call it church on the move, not just you on the move. Pastor John, last week preached to us about being in cell group. We're not to live in isolation, in our comfy digital caves where we just cocoon our lives away from people. That's not healthy. That's not reality. That's not biblical. I love Instagram. But you know, Instagram is stylized living. Every picture is some stylized event. That's not how we live. We don't live a perpetual stylized picture. Biblical living is being together, doing life together. If we just live in isolation, that's self-absorbed Egyptian living. Another one of our habits, new spiritual habits, is serving. Bringing your gifts to the forefront. We're going to be distributing a, a gift survey based on all the prophetic words that have been spoken over so many of us. There are gifts and talents and callings and destinies that are here. The degree to which you're not bringing your gift forth is the degree to which we are operating at a suboptimal level. It's not about 50 people doing the work of the ministry. It's not even about 100 doing the work of the ministry. It's about every member doing the work of the ministry. You all have things that God created you with to contribute so that the church will shine and be strong. So we want to map it out. We're going to see in 3D all the things that God has put into our members. It's a treasure chest. Serving is part of the new discipline. Giving. You mean we have to give? We have to tithe? We have to... Again, that's even the wrong question. You know, food is one of the greatest love languages. Right? Isn't it? You can be from any country, any ethnicity, and food just brings us together. Food is a love language that we all enjoy. But there's one love language that's above food, and that's money. We all love money. We all love it with all our hearts. But when we come into the promised land, it requires a new attitude, a new surrender towards finances. Don't hold your money back from God. Money is a way to express your gratitude and your worship to God for your salvation. 
goodness gracious, he died on the cross for you. And you have problems giving $10 or $100 or $1,000 or $10,000 or a million? How much is your soul worth? Is there a price tag that you can put on it? How much would you pay for your salvation? If God said to you, give up movies for a year for your salvation, would you do it? No more Netflix. No more landmark theater. No more 3D movies. No more Marvel comics. Or Mission Impossible. Give it all up. Could you do it? If God said no more Starbucks, no more coffee for a year in order to secure your salvation, would you do it? I hope you would say yes in a heartbeat. If God said give up your shoes and your purses and your watches and your cars and your vacations, eating out, would you do it? How do you view your finances in comparison to eternity? How do you view finances in comparison to the value of your soul? How do you view it in comparison to a God who died on the cross for you? That shows you how valuable you are in God's eyes. If I die for someone, that's the ultimate statement of how much I care for that person. He died for you. Is it painful being circumcised? In a good way it is. There are very real lifestyle changes that impact our money, our schedule, our time, our planning, how we raise our family, how we relate to culture. When you go into the promised land, it's new habits and new disciplines. Number two, circumcision helps us to develop new spiritual feeding routines. Verse 11 and 12 says this, On the day after the Passover, on that day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. The manna ceased on the day after they had eaten some of the produce of the land, so that the sons of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate some of the yield of the land of Canaan during that year. Forty years, millions of people marching through the desert, and God every morning provides manna for them. They don't have all the utensils. They don't all have their fancy cooking pans. They don't have the ability to carry that along with them. So God says, I'm going to be your cook. Every morning you wake up, get out of your tents, brush your teeth, get the sleep out of your eyes. Dinner served right there on the ground. Pick up all the manna from the ground. And by the way, the word manna means, what is it? The first time the Israelites were served manna, they go, what is this? They'd never seen it before. For 40 years, food was served for them. But the Bible says that when they crossed into the promised land, the manna stopped. The way we mature spiritually is to start feeding ourselves. Manna is great when breakfast is served, but promised land living is where God trains us to cook for ourselves to become our own five-star chefs. There's no better way to experience transformation and retain biblical knowledge than to learn directly from the Bible yourself so the Holy Spirit can speak directly to you. Teachers are great and preachers are great. They're ordained by God to help us mature. But ultimately, God wants one-on-one -on -one time with you. He wants face time with you. And we have to go through a paradigm shift Oh, but I, I love my Christian radio and I love my podcast and I love my YouTube videos. Those are all good. But the paradigm shift, the new practical way of living closer to God is for you to open the Bible with an open heart. 
And then when you mine the Bible for its truth, harvest the grain and the wheat, not only does that process mature you, but you receive from what you receive from the word matures you even more permanently. And what you pass on to others has greater anointing. What you learn directly from God, when you speak that to others, it has a different kind of force, has a different kind of impact because now that word has been incarnated in your life. You're not speaking it secondhand. It's firsthand, directly from God. That's spiritual authority. If you repeat something that you hear from the pulpit, that's great. But that's a delegated authority that you're hearing. Truth is truth. It does communicate. But when you hear it directly from God, there is another level of anointing and power. So Mimi's been going through our literacy program. She's been sharing with me some insights that she's been getting. And it's been great. And there's a real kick to it. And it's like she's saying to me, see, I can preach just like you. And that's how it should be. Babies are the best things in the world. I said this in the first service. We have got the cutest babies in this church, and I will put them up against any babies in any other church. But we don't have babies to leave them in that state. I would not be doing my job if Five Stones Church was just a nursery. Promised Land Living is about maturing us from being baby Christians into fully mature Christians. Man is not wrong, but eating, sowing, reaping, and harvesting from the word ourselves is the advanced way of enjoying God. That's why we promote our literacy program all the time. It's about your maturity, but it requires new spiritual muscles on your part. Third point. Verses 13 to 15. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, Why? What does my Lord say to his servant? The commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. This is an incredible encounter. This is what we call a theophany. That's a theological term where God appears. Jesus is making an appearance here before Joshua without telling Joshua his name. It's a big moment. Jesus stands in front of him with this sword drawn. So Joshua, being a military man, asks a military question. Are you for us or are you for our enemies? But here's where if you read the Bible slowly and you're meditating, you're thinking on it, you read his response and you go, what? Because Jesus says no. He doesn't answer Joshua's question. Or is he answering Joshua's question? What is Jesus trying to tell us with his cryptic response? Well, Jesus has an agenda for Joshua. He's taking him someplace. And he wants Joshua's heart to be perfectly aligned to his, to have his worship in the right place. Joshua, being a general, sees everything in military terms. That's his prism for life. Prism, not prison, prism. That prism, that way of looking at life could have been his idol. We all have things in our life that we live around. 
our hurts, our devastation, our anger, our unforgiveness, our success, our money, our status, how we dress, how we look, or a lack of looks, our talents, and whether we know it or not, it's how we view life. And God is so gracious, and he meets us where we're at, in our place of hurt or anger or pride or success, just as Jesus came to meet Joshua as a military man. But Jesus has another goal in mind, and this is his agenda. I'm bigger than your worldview. I'm bigger than your hurt. I'm bigger than your past, your resentment, your failures. I'm bigger than even your success. I don't care if you're a billionaire. I'm bigger than your bank account and your fame. Oh, by the way, Joshua, yeah, I'm the commander. I'm the captain of the hosts, so I've got you covered. But I'm bigger than all of that. There's a better way to live. Don't let those things define you. Let me define you. And those three words in verse 14 is the key because Jesus says to Joshua, I have come. I'm standing in front of you. It's not all the things that are in your vision, all the things that you've walked through, your life history. I have come and I'm standing in front of you. And when we get a revelation of Jesus, everything else fades to the background. And this is what happened to Joshua. He falls to the ground. He bows down, humbles himself. And now he asks a completely different question than his first one because his worldview has changed. What controlled him before now gives way to his vision of Christ. So a completely different question comes out and he asks, what does my Lord say to his servant? So our orientation is not around our idols anymore. It's about our worship of God. I want to be your servant. I want to do what you want me to do. I want to hear your voice. And hearing the voices about being a prophetic people. In one sense, this is the ultimate definition of being a church on the move. We hear what the Spirit of God says and we do it. That's the ultimate definition. We hear and we act. We are His ambassadors. And this is what God is after for each of us, for you and for me. And Jesus was teaching Joshua a better and a higher way. This was the exact same lesson that Joshua's mentor also experienced, right? Moses was Joshua's mentor. And when Moses was there at the burning bush, and he gets close to that burning bush, what does the voice out of the burning bush say? And by the way, that's also a, what's the theological term? Theophany, God appearance. The burning bush says to him, if you're standing on holy ground, take off your sandals. Every single one of us has a leadership position in some way. Every single one of us has a place of influence. And God's word to Moses and Joshua is the same to us. Take off your sandals. You're standing on holy ground. Sandals represents our common life. We take them off because when we worship God, we step out of that which is common and move into the uncommon life. Our whole life becomes holy when we pursue his will and remove all idols. When you walk into your destiny with Jesus at the center of your worship, you will become victorious. You will be prophetic and you will be a winner. You will be a winner, not a loser. This chapter gives us so many more truths about coming into our promised land for being a church that makes a difference. And these truths are not just motivational, inspirational. It's God's will for your life and my life. 
We know that Jesus in the spiritual sense is the promised land for every single one of us. We have that in common. But each of us has our own story that God is writing through us. And so the principles that I'm teaching you about courage and loyalty to God's word, being led by the ark, circumcision and being separated and consecrated unto God, they relate to your personal walk with God. When you walk out of the service today, starting tomorrow, you can apply these truths. And when you apply these truths to your life, there is no doubt that you will flourish. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So here's the summary from our chapter. Circumcision of the heart is saying to ourselves, we are God's. I'm God's. No one else owns me. I don't belong to anyone else. I've been bought with a price. I'm his, I'm consecrated and set apart for him. That's my identity. I move out of my identity. I am not confused about my identity. I don't change my identity. I don't resort my identity like a card of deck, a deck of cards. I don't go back and forth. I know who I am. And when you know who you are, you are secure. You are healthy. You are happy. And you're joyful. God does not sow confusion. He is not the God of confusion. He is a God of clarity. He is a God of joy. That's the promised land. And when I walk in that identity, it has some very practical implications. I have new spiritual disciplines that I live by. Not because I have to, but because I want to. Because I get to. One of the greatest things I get to do is to write my check to God. I love doing it. One of the things I get to do every single morning is get up and study my Bible. Get on my knees and just soak in God. I get to do that. One of the things I love doing for 40 years as a Christian is come to church. And not because I'm a pastor. I still take notes. When Pastor John is preaching, I'm taking notes. I'm learning over and over and over. Deepening something. I may have heard it 10 times, a dozen times. I can always glean something more. Are you a spiritual learner? Being circumcised is a commitment to grow, growing past being a baby Christian. And my worship is of Jesus. No more idols. I'm going to end on this thought here. When you go back to Genesis 17, and you read the story of when God gave circumcision to Abram, a really, really powerful thing happens. God changed the name of Abram to Abraham. His identity changed. And that little aspect from Abram to Abraham, that soft ham part, is from where we get the word Yahweh. God's name became part of his identity. It became integrated into who he is. And that's what circumcision is about, saying, God, I'm now yours. You mark me, you brand me. My name includes the very person of who you are. That's why we're called Christians, little Christs. So, Father, we look to you this morning. We thank you, Father God, that your spirit is speaking to the church. We're thankful, God, that you're telling us and opening up for us afresh how you want all of us to just go into our promised land. 
how you're challenging us, Father God, to be more separated, to be more consecrated. We don't want to be like the Egyptians. We don't want to live like the Canaanites. We want to live like you are our God. So Jesus, would you just fill every single one of us? This morning, you've spoken to our hearts. I encourage you to just pray as we have this last song and commit yourself afresh to what God spoke to you. Write it down. Continue to pray over it. Work through it. And say, yes, Lord, make me more like Jesus. We thank you now in the precious name of your son.